You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon and peace be upon you and welcome to another episode of The Drive Time Show at the end of the year. And uh, as it's been going on in the last couple of days, the Drive Time Show is looking back at the year that was 2022 and what a year it was. We are at the end of the de- uh, of December, so join us as we look back at some key events and the shows that we produced for you in this month of December. So let's start off with China. After substantial protests against China's zero COVID policy, uh, policies, the Chinese government eases on its COVID restrictions, one of the last countries to do so. However, we quickly saw um, quite a rise in infection and deaths following the easing, with many countries imposing travel restrictions on people traveling from China to other parts of the world. The latest development, you might have heard that a couple of days ago, the uh, United States requires now a negative COVID test from people traveling from China. Of course, the details are a little bit more uh, complex on that, excuse me. But uh, that is the latest development on that. Then three people were killed and four others injured in a mass shooting at a Kurdish community center in Paris in France, leading to violent protests. The perpetrator, a 69-year-old Frenchman, was then arrested following after uh, following this uh, shooting. Then you had the Taliban, which issued a decree banning female employees from all non-governmental organizations in Afghanistan. Only a few weeks ago, they banned women from gaining education. And the world saw hot, heartbreaking scenes of Afghan women leaving university unable to complete their education. Uh, Quite in contrary to what uh, we saw in the beginning when the Taliban took over again, during the year, uh, saying that uh, this is not the case. Uh, women will be allowed to attend university. Women will be allowed to gain higher education. But unfortunately, that was not the case. And then just very, very recently, from the 21st to the 26th of December, a historic extra-tropical bomb cyclone brought blizzards condition, blizzard conditions and winter storms to much of Buffalo and the United States, killing at least 85 people, causing vehicle pileups and road closures, as well as cancelling or delaying more than 10,000 flights during the busy Christmas travel season. And so... During the show, as we've been doing uh, in the last uh, couple of days, we look at some of the shows that we have produced here on the Draft Time Show. We're going to start off with the topic of the Hajjid. Now, the Hajjid is a voluntary prayer within Islam. And as per the Arabic language, it means to cast away sleep and then stand up to pray. And it comes from the uh, Arabic word juhud, which means to struggle, signifying the struggle of getting up after sleep. And now this... Time for the Hajjid starts after the night prayer, which is the Isha prayer. Uh, and once you have been offered, and once that has been offered and one has slept for a period, then you are uh, supposed to wake up. The end of the Hajjid time occurs at the nautical twilight when the time for Fajr, which is the morning prayer, starts. And a good rule or good general rule of thumb to keep in mind is that the end of the Hajjid and the start of Fajr time begins 70 to 90 minutes before sunrise. However, this time may vary 
uh, from country to country, and of course during the year as well. Aside from its Islamic benefits, the Hajj prayer is now being recognized to also have countless health benefits. So we looked at in one of those shows that we had on this topic, we looked at the scientific as well as the health benefits. And one may argue that where health experts advise at least eight hours of straight sleep, the hajjid causes, well, broken sleep. So how can it have any health benefits and can less sleep actually be good for you. According to historian Roger E. Kirsch, many of our modern health problems have roots in the way we ignore the body's natural preference for broken sleep. His research found that before the discovery of artificial light, humans slept for a few hours before waking to engage in activities and then going back to sleep. While there is no doubt that the human body needs sleep, there is also no doubt that the human soul needs prayer to stay energized, healthy, and hopeful. An article described a number of specific health benefits that can be achieved through the physical act of waking up and offering the Hajjad prayer, which is a voluntary pre-morning prayer. Improved immunity, which can also help expel various diseases. It improves blood circulation because during the prayer, many limbs are used from the palms of our hands to our heads, uh, the knees, uh, and you name it. And these movements, they accelerate blood circulation. Lifting both palms during the prayer, during the hajat, can open lung cavities, and hence the blood flow to the lungs becomes more fluent. Other benefits include relaxing neck muscles, preventing back pain, and also preventing stiffness in the legs. As I mentioned, you go down in prostration, you um, put your hands on the ground, and you get up again, etc., etc. So all of these movements, they help uh, with the stiffness in the legs, especially after you wake up from prayer. Now, in relation to this, a narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is that he reported to have said, Inna fi shifa, meaning, verily, there's cure in salat in prayer. So let's start off with the first clip for today. In one of our shows in December, we spoke to um, a young Ahmadi Muslim, Hashim Mirza, and how he has managed to make the Hajj a part of his routine. And we're going to listen to that interview and then move on to the second uh, topic for today's show. So this is Hashim Mirza talking to us, speaking about uh, the Hajj, the pre-morning prayer, the voluntary pre-morning prayer, and how uh, he has made it a part of his routine, especially keeping in mind that he's a very young individual who has managed to to include this as a very crucial part of his routine, part of his life. Let's see what he had to say. Assalamu alaikum wa We are pleased to have Farhan Iqbal, who is a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community serving in Canada. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and Jazakallah for, for joining us. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah, and uh, Jazakallah for having me. Now, to begin with, what is the difference between offering your nawafil prayers, your voluntary prayers, straight after your isha prayers, the, the which are the night prayers, and offering the tahajjud prayer, which is the pre you know the the pre dawn prayer? Yeah, so both of them are basically nawafil prayers. They're they're voluntary. Um, they just have a you know tahajjud prayer, as you mentioned, is before dawn, and uh, nawafil prayers can be offered any other time of the day. But uh, the the big difference is, the, you know, to begin with, uh, in the Holy Quran, Allah says, "Auzu billahi min ash-shaitan rajim wa min al-layli fatahajjat bihi nafilatallah," and offer 
tahajjud uh, with the recitation of the Quran in a part of the night as a voluntary service for you. So in, in other words, tahajjud is something that is specifically mentioned and encouraged in the Holy Quran, and that would obviously be one of the main and big uh, differences. The other, the other thing we, we should remember is that in Islam, when, I, when it comes to our prayers, we follow the model of the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and in the Holy Quran, Allah says, "Wama ataakum, ataakum rasulu fakhuzuhu, wama nahaakum anhu fantahu," which means that whatsoever the messenger, that is Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, whatever he gives you, whatever uh, he does, you should take it, you should follow it, and whatever he forbids you from, you should abstain from it. So it's a clear injunction for us to follow what the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam did. And we see that in his life, he should he he used to offer tahajjud prayer very regularly. I mean, he offered other nawafil prayers as well, but he was very particular about tahajjud prayer. And there's one narration from Hazrat Bilal radiallahu where he narrates that the Holy Prophet sallallahu said, "You should be very regular in tahajjud. That has been the practice of the righteous ones in the past, and is a means of attaining nearness to God. This is a habit that safeguards against sin." removes blemishes and safeguards from physical illness. And so that, you know, we see the, we see the emphasis that has been laid upon tahajjad, unlike other nawafil uh, prayers. And of course, the, 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 the difference would be that we go to bed, we, 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 uh, we are expected to have some sleep and then wake up for tahajjad prayer. So the extra effort and the sacrifice of sleep that is involved makes this, the, the, this, uh, the Hajjad prayer, the Nafal prayer, which is offered in the morning, uh, a lot more rewarding. Uh, because we are making that special sacrifice, there is obviously greater reward in this uh, in this prayer. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for um, clarifying that as well. Talking about Hajjad prayer in particular, as we you know we're talking about this um, on our show. Prayers in Islam, uh, which are the five obligatory prayers, they are normally done, uh, or they are told uh, to be done in congregation, um, particularly in the mosque. Now, what about the tahajjud prayers? Does that need a congregation as well? Do they can they be offered in congregation, or is it better to do it in person? I mean, individually. Yeah. So with tahajjud prayer, uh, it is possible uh, to do both. Ways. I mean, uh, if uh, tajid prayer is offered in congregation, it would not be wrong. We have both practices uh, from the uh, from the practice uh, of the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. For instance, there is one narration in Bukhari where it says that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam slept and then woke up in the morning, and there was this companion, a young boy at that time, uh, who was with him, and he stood up uh, by his side. Um, to offer the prayer and 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 uh, you know he he the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam even moved him to towards his right side so we have that uh, example of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam doing that in congregation there are some other narrations about that as well but hmm. the the uh, the main way the the priority should be given to offering the hajj individually like on your own instead of in congregation uh, you know, and that was the practice of the Holy Prophet ﷺ for most of his life. So, congregational tahajjud was an exception. It was not the rule. The rule was to offer the tahajjud prayer uh, on your own, right. uh, because you want that time 
to to recite the Quran, uh, to to offer you know prayers in sajda. So you want that privacy uh, in in tahajjud prayer that you would not have if you were offering it in congregation, mm-hmm. right? So in our jamaat we have we have uh, the practice that on special occasions we do have tahajjud prayer. For instance, recently with the Jasa Salana, uh, we had the tahajjud prayer in the morning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And we we see that the tahajjud prayer is not, uh, you know, it's a voluntary prayer, as you mentioned, that it, it is a form of nawafil as well, in the best form of nawafil, but it is a form of nawafil. Now, the nawafil are, you know, as as it says in its name, it's they're, they're voluntary. They're done, you know, out of compulsion. But w- what is the point then in, in praying in them if, you know, the five daily prayers, if if that is enough? Then what is sort of the are there more blessings in the tahajjud prayer? What's the you know what's the reason behind that one? Well, a part of the answer I already gave with uh, when we were talking earlier about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam doing this and whatever we know about prayers comes to us from the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Yes, and because he he offered these prayers regularly and whatever he did, we try to follow him. Um, in Islamic jurisprudence, we have categories of prayers. Uh, you have mentioned uh, the prayers, the couple of categories all, already. There are the obligatory prayers, the first prayers, then there is the sunnah prayer, and then there's the nawafil. Hmm. Among the nawafil or voluntary prayers, the hajjad has the highest uh, position, it has the highest, uh, the, it has the high, highest reward. Hmm. There is a narration uh, from Hazrat Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu, he says, "Anna Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam qala, 'Yanzilu Rabbuna tabaraka wa taala kulla laylatin ila samai dunya hina yabka sulusul laylil akhiru fa yakulu man yaduuni fa astajibu lahu wa man yasaluni fa utiyahu wa man yastaghfiruni fa aghfirallah." Which means that the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that, "O oh, that our Lord, um, the blessing." the blessed and exalted descends every night to the lowest heaven hmm. when one third of the latter part of the night is left and says, who supplicates to me so that I may answer him? Who asks me so that I may give it to him? Who asks me for forgiveness so that I may forgive him? So it's a special time to be offering nafal prayer uh, at uh, that early part of the night, uh, uh, early part of the, uh, the latter part of the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just before before dawn, because again, you, you, when we get up uh, at that time, we are sacrificing sleep only so that we can offer a voluntary prayer. So we're making, we're putting a lot of effort, uh, you know, to 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 get up and, and sacrificing our sleep uh, to offer something that we are not even required to do. So obviously, that uh, kind of sacrifice which is voluntary, would have a much greater reward as opposed to some doing something which uh, we are obligated to do, like the first prayer, right. which is the Fajr prayer, for instance. Right. Because, uh, you know, obligatory prayers are are things that you, we are told that if you don't do it, it would be sinful, and there's a, there is an accountability for that. Exactly. But the Hajjit prayer is something that we're doing on, on our own, right? Right, exactly. Beautifully put there. Now, when we talk about uh, the tahajjud prayers and somebody wants to actually get into the habit uh, of that, how many how many rakat does one need to pray anyway? I mean, is it is is it eight or is it you can simply just pray two? 
or is there more than that or less than that? What, what, what's the what's the amount of uh, of that? We we do have the example of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam offering eight rakat. Hmm. Um, that is one model to follow, and that is obviously a good standard uh, to, to or a good goal uh, to 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 try to achieve. Hmm. Um, there is a quotation of the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, a short quotation that I would like to share, yes. where he explains this. So he says, our jamaat should make it incumbent upon itself to offer tahajjud. Hmm. Anyone who cannot do more should make at a minimum two rakat hmm. because he will get an opportunity to make some supplications. Right. Right. And then he says supplications made at this time have a very special characteristic because they are of through pain and eagerness. So in other words, you know, the habit is more important. Trying to do it regularly is more important. And if you cannot do more, at least just two rakat you should try and offer at that time. Absolutely, absolutely. And just before um, we let you go as well, how can someone who who is you know wants to now get into the habit or build that habit, uh, get into the routine of waking up for the Hajj on a regular basis, not just a one-off, not just during the month of Ramadan, but you know make that a part of his or her life? How can sort of how can you do that? Because waking up for the you know especially living. In these sort of countries, I mean, specifically speaking about the UK, where the Fajr prayer, the morning prayer, is or the dawn pre-dawn prayer is so early in the morning. How can we get into the habit of waking up for Tahajjud even before that? Right. Uh, there is a there is a wonderful book, Remembrance of Allah, hmm. by the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad. May Allah be pleased with him, where he has listed thirteen ways to get up for. Tahajjad. Hmm. Uh, this book is available for download uh, on alislam.org. Just type in the search bar, remember Allah. Go to page 34 and you will see uh, the methods listed. Just to give you a quick hint of what those methods are, right. uh, he talks about using an alarm clock, for instance, obviously, right? Yeah. And then he talks about, uh, you know, how it is a law of nature that everything reverts to its original state if similar circumstances reappear. Um, and, and then he talks about how if you are offering zikr after Isha prayer, hmm. right, which is late into the night, right. the more zikr you pro- perform, the earlier you will get up for zikr in the morning. So it will have this natural impact on your biological clock where you're offering zikr late in the evening and then you get up early in the morning. For It's easier to get up early in the morning, morning for, for the same uh, zikr. Uh, another example of a method he listed is is to perform wuzu, ablution, before going to bed. So that cleanliness and that it puts you into that mode of uh, you know being clean and being uh, with ablution before you are you're going to bed. And uh, that cleanliness, that spirituality, helps you in the morning uh, to get up earlier. So these are just quick uh, you know small habits that we can form uh, that can help us get up for tahajjud more easily so you can consult the book to to read all the details absolutely absolutely well thank you so much for for joining us uh, imam farhan iqbal uh, missionary of the ahmadiyya muslim community from uh, serving in canada zakala once uh, once again and uh, assalamu alaikum peace be upon you thank you for having me walaikum assalam all right, uh, I do have to apologize. There's a correction I have to make. It, this was not Hashim Mirza. This was Imam Farhan Iqbal from Canada, as you've just heard in the intro and outro. We thank Imam Farhan Iqbal, who has been with us uh, throughout the year. 
um, and we've spoken to him on different occasions, uh, speaking and asking him questions on different topics. So thank you very much to Imam Farhan Iqbal. The Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has said, If our entire lives are spent in worldly engagements, what will we have accumulated for the hereafter? Make a special effort to wake up for tahajjud and offer it with fervor and joy. At another occasion, the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, on whom be peace, instructed us and said that our jamaat, meaning our community, should make it incumbent upon itself to offer tahajjud. Anyone who cannot do more should make it should make a minimum two rakat because he will get an opportunity to make some supplications. Supplications made at this time have a very special characteristic because they are offered with true pain and eagerness. Nothing is impossible if we ask for Allah's help, have pure intentions, and are willing to work for it. So that, for our Muslim brothers and sisters who are listening out there, and it is the end of the year and we're all thinking about New Year's resolutions. Maybe that's one of the top resolutions that we should put on that list um, to you know, train our spiritual body to Spain, to train our spiritual side and not just look at worldly gains and worldly pleasures and, and, and the physical body that we have. So if you want to hit the gym, by all means, go for it. Have it on your resolution list. But also train your spiritual body. Moving on, we spoke about teachers in the month of December as well. Teachers um, are a very integral and crucial part of our lives. We start from kindergarten, we start from primary school, and from that time on, when you're just you know five or six years old, they become a part of your life. In the Holy Quran, in chapter 2, verse 130, God Almighty states, And our Lord raise up among them a messenger from among themselves, who may recite to them thy signs and teach them the book and wisdom, and may purify them. Surely thou art the mighty, the wise. So prophets are also teachers in a sense. They come to the society that God Almighty sends them to and they teach the people about spirituality. They teach them about the unseen. They teach them about who God is and how to connect with God Almighty. But if we look at the UK and the world around, teachers are leaving careers they love in a last-ditch effort to save their mental health. The question we asked in one of those shows that we spoke about uh, teachers was that how did we get here? How did we get to a point where teachers who, again, they're not in there for the money, how are they ditching or how are they leaving this very noble profession to save their mental health? Amidst all the pandemic, did we neglect our teachers and left them unsupported and unappreciated? Well, 52% of teachers in the UK felt a decline in their mental health at the start of the pandemic with absolutely no guidance or help provided how to go through that. And how were they really feeling? Half of the UK school teachers say that the first stage of the pandemic took a toll on their mental health, whilst 67% of senior leaders who were working on site at a school or college said that the lack of timely government guidance was a key challenge for them throughout. The tragic reality is that 77% of teachers experience poor mental health because of their work, whereas 72% reported being stressed and overworked. When asked, teachers and education professionals felt undervalued and unappreciated in relation to external relationships, including the government and education departments. 
and they also felt a lack of consistent and dominant clear guidance and direction from the UK government. Islam has paid considerable attention to teachers for their being the first brick in the structure of social development and perfection, and the cause of guiding and developing behaviors and mentalities of individuals and communities. The Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, cared for teachers and showed their elevated standings. For example, once he passed by two circles of people. The first was supplicating to God while the other listening were listening to a teacher. He commented that the first is begging Allah who may or may not give them. The second was learning. I have been sent as a teacher. Hence, he joined the second group. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the best of teachers. One narration goes that Muawiyah bin al-Hakam, may Allah be pleased with him, said that, By Allah, I have never seen a better teacher or better teaching before or since. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not rebuke me. He he did not hit me or he did not revile me. The best among you are those who learn the Quran and teach it to others. That's also one of the narrations of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So we as Muslims or Islam has taught us to treat teachers with a huge amount of respect and to value their teachings. Again, I bring this quote from the life of Pi. Uh, every time we talk about teachers and educators, uh, there's a quote, and again, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, in which it says that um, I have had the good fortune, uh, I've had, uh, I've been blessed that I have had teachers come into my life and illuminate the darkness uh, of my mind. And that's exactly what teachers do. When we go through the education system, as a young child, if you're a parent, you know that within a couple of months, you know, grade one or year one or year two, the development that your child goes through when they go into school and they don't know anything about the alphabet, they don't know anything about maths, they don't know anything about science. And you see that development every day they're learning. And after a couple of months, they're able to read. After a couple of months, they're able to do uh, simple maths. How astonishing, how amazing that is. And that is all thanks to the teachers that we have in place. Now, we recently spoke with a deputy head teacher called uh, by the name of Alex Green, and we spoke to Alex about teachers and their well-being, just on that topic that we just spoke about, the these you know stats that we've mentioned of teachers being feeling undervalued uh, about their you know experiencing poor mental health because of the work that they have to go through, being stressed and being overworked, and this is what Alex. Green, uh, deputy head teacher, had to say. Our first guest for this part of the program is Alex Green. Alex is a deputy head teacher at a primary school, and we're going to talk to Alex and ask her a few questions about this topic. Good afternoon, peace upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Alex. Good to have you on. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Now, there's a few things that I mentioned in the beginning before you took on um, that. 77% of teachers experience poor mental health because of the, their work. Uh, 72% reported being stressed and overworked. And we also looked at some figures from when the pandemic started, the first half, half or the first beginning of the pandemic. Um, keeping all of this in mind, do you think that we have neglected our teachers? Um, I, I think it depends who the we is. Um, so... I work in a very busy South West London primary school and as a school we've worked hard to make sure that our teachers are well supported mm. and have what they need to enable them to teach well 
Um, so I suppose the we as a country, um, you know, as, as an education system, I, I think it's a tough job and I think we probably underestimated um, the impact of the pandemic because of course whilst lots of people were working from home we were we were in school yeah. um, and we were also having to juggle lots as lots of people were lots of different things so we were having to juggle some children in some children not in school making sure we engaged all those children um, that were working at home making sure we engaged the children within school making sure we gave them the same offer which was really tough so um not as a school no but potentially it, it's something to think about in terms of the, the the pandemic did have quite a big impact on yeah. uh, teachers and you know children likewise mm. alex uh, you know before we talk about mental health of the teachers uh all qualified teachers apparently will have a starting salary of at least twenty eight thousand and this will be slightly higher for teachers working in London. Uh, do you think that this is a fair salary with with the keeping in mind the 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 work and the pressure, the hours, the hours, and then also we know people on similar um, uh, you know salaries, uh, especially rail workers, have gone on on strike. Should yeah. should should is that a concern, or do you think that? Teachers also should be given more. I don't think um, any teacher goes into the profession um, yeah. to make lots of money. I think you have to go into the profe- profession because you want to really want to support um, children. Because um, the, the, the you know it, it's a busy, demanding job with long hours. You're never going to be financially rewarded the same as you would mm. in lots of jobs in the city. I think in London, particularly, it's tough. To live on that and certainly as a school uh, our staff retention is quite challenging because the cost of living is increasing and our teachers cannot afford to live in London and we we are losing some really good people because they're choosing to live in other parts of the country where it's more affordable all right now um so we are talking about the the mental health of of our teachers. In in your opinion, what do you think has caused that decline in in the mental health of teachers? Um, so as we mentioned before, I think the pandemic has had an impact. Sure. It's just on teachers have increased because uh, children's ac- um, academic performance. There's been gaps that we've been expected to fill. Um, pressures from Ofsted and that kind of threat it's certainly um, a threat here we've been mm. overdue for an inspection for quite some years and and suppose, so also that so workload you know which goes I suppose hand in hand with what I've just said mm. um probably the demands of the work uh, of workload um and the demands of, of school so as a senior leader in, in a school our budgets are cu- uh, have been cut and so that has an impact on what we can deliver for our children um so I think I think that has quite an impact on yeah. on you know teachers' mental health. And within a school, how much or how do you, as a deputy head, how do you ensure that every teacher's well-being is looked after? Is that something that um, can I mean colleagues amongst each other? Is 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 that something that is helpful? Yeah, well, I mean we we're we're a close-knit team. We're a two-form entry primary school. We've got about. 450 children here hmm. um, and we've got quite a big teaching staff we um, yes people supporting so I think having that teamwork ethos 
Um, we've done quite a lot of work with our teachers. Mental health is a huge priority here and has been for some years um, for our staff and for our children. But I think um, making sure that you, you talk to your staff about what they want, because actually what we realised is that the precious the precious thing for teachers is time. So we've, we've given them additional time. We've hmm. given them PD opportunities to enable them to deliver their best for the children. On the other side of the, the, the coin, Alex, uh, would it be fair to say that, you know, with the with the current economic situation, there's all, only so much money that is available uh, for, for schools and ultimately to pay the children as well? Uh, sorry, the, the teachers as well. And on the other side, uh, you know, in terms of holidays, uh, you could argue that maybe teachers are getting more um, holidays than other people working in other jobs. Is that true or not? I mean, I, I, I'm a teacher. I came into teaching and I worked um, I worked in a completely different career before I became a teacher. So I've seen both sides of it. Hmm. Um, so I've seen the sort of classic 25 to 30 day holiday a year. And I think it's different. It's very different. What I used to do was a sort of classic uh, 9 till 6, 6.30 job. And I took my holiday. What I do now is work very, very intensely for a six or seven week period. And um, this is the same for most of our teachers here. Um, I do work in the holidays, but you also, you work intensely and then you have to almost rest your body for um, a, a week or so to get over the intense period of working. So I think it's very, very different and hmm. difficult to compare. So I know lots of people say, oh, yes, but you get long holidays. And I agree. We do have nice holidays and that's very nice. But the, the intensity it, um, of working is very different. Yeah. At this moment in time, what do you think, what do you feel is is the biggest issue for teachers? What is something that is, uh, that they're not being heard? Uh, what's, 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 what are some of the things that the, the general public may not be aware of? I mean, workload is a big one, but I think probably the general public are aware of that. Um what else would I say? Or the biggest neglect from, from, from the government perspective. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you hope? What do you achieve? What do you try to... Uh, are you expecting anything um, to, to change? Are you, um, you know, expecting the government to, to, to step up a little bit if they haven't done so? I mean, I think there's more, uh, you know, they're, they're saying that there's going to be a bit more money for schools, which, hmm. is, which is a good thing. Um, I think maybe just remembering that the aftermath of the pandemic is still there for our children. Yeah. They, some of them weren't in school for almost two years, and though, although academically schools have worked really hard to plug those gaps, let's remember that for some children in those really, really important years, they missed out on those social that the, that sociability, and and they had some children had lots of socialised socialized isolation hmm. and actually that has quite a long-lasting effect so i think um everyone needs to be really really mindful of that and i think sometimes that that's been forgotten yeah alex green deputy head teacher at a primary school here in london thank you very much for your time alex and uh, thank you so much for, for for joining us today no problem thank you take care that was Alex Green. Alex Green. Thank you to Alex as well. And uh, to all of the teachers out there listening, thank you very much for everything that you have been doing throughout the year. We are wishing you a very, very wonderful new and happy year. Hopefully that new year brings many, many joys and happiness for you 
and may it prove to be better than the years before. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when speaking about Hazrat Aisha, uh, his wife, may Allah be pleased with her, instructed the believers to learn half of religious knowledge from her. So teachers who are shaping and influencing our future generation are being let down and failed by society and governing bodies. We need to come together, step up, help and support, value and appreciate teachers together. It is one of the most respected and valued professions of the world. No doubt about that. A teacher is always considered as a highly honored person in every religion. No matter from which religion or society you belong to, you always show respect and honor to people who teach you things. There's a famous saying of Hazrat Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, the fourth caliph of Islam, in which he said that if a person teaches me one single word, he has made me his servant for a lifetime. So that is the importance, that is the respect that we have been taught to give to teachers. Moving on, December the 2nd marks the International Day for the Abolition of Slavery. On this day in 1949, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the United Nations Conventions for the Suppression of the Traffic in Person and of the Exploitation of the Prostitution of Others. 73 years have passed since then, but is slavery something that we have left behind? If you think so, well, then think again. Reports suggest that 50 million people are currently victims of modern-day slavery, and the number of people in slavery has risen significantly in the last five years. At the Draft Time Show here, we looked at the history of slavery and asked if we have learned from the past to tackle today's issues. The focus of the International Day for the Abolition of Slavery is on eradicating contemporary forms of slavery, such as trafficking in person, sexual exploitation, the the worst forms of child labor, forced marriage, and the forced recruitment of children for use in armed conflict. According to the International Labor Organization, there are currently an estimated 21 million forced labor victims worldwide creating 150 billion US dollars in illegal profits in the private economy each year. So although modern day slavery or modern slavery is not defined in law, it is used as an umbrella term covering practices such as forced labor, debt bondage, forced marriage and human trafficking. Essentially, it refers to situations of exploitation that a person cannot refuse or leave because of threats because of violence, coercion, deception, and or abuse of power. So it occurs in almost every country in the world. Yes, modern-day slavery, modern slavery occurs in almost every country in the world and cuts across ethnic, uh, cultural, and also religious lines. More than half of all forced labor, which is you know, roughly 52%, and a quarter of all forced marriages can be found in upper-middle-income or high-income countries. So it's a problem that affects every country on earth, including yours and ours. Modern slavery is all around us, often quite hidden in plain sight. People can become enslaved making our clothes, serving our food, picking our crops, working in factories, or working in houses as cooks, cleaners, or even nannies. Um... And victims of modern slavery might face violence or threats, be forced into inescapable debt or have their passports taken away and face being threatened with deportation. Many people have fallen into this trap because they were trying to escape poverty or insecurity, improve their lives and support their families. And now 
they simply can't leave. People may end up trapped in slavery because they're vulnerable to being tricked, trapped and exploited, often as a result of poverty and exclusion, and because laws do not properly protect them. They can be particularly vulnerable to modern slavery when external circumstances push them into taking risky decisions in search of opportunities to provide for their families, or when people find they are simply pushed into jobs and exploitative conditions. So anyone could be pressed into forced labor, but people in vulnerable situations, such as being in debt or not having access to their passports, are probably at most risk. Crises like the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change can make people even more vulnerable to exploitation. Throughout the show, throughout the year, not just this year, but also last year, when we looked at the different crises around the world, the different um, wars that have erupted around the world. You remember when uh, the millions and millions of people from Syria and Afghanistan fled to Europe, how some of them were stuck at a point where they were approached by traffickers, they were approached by people who promised them a bed of roses, who promised them paradise, who promised them so much just for... Um, you know, a couple of pounds or, you know, a couple of dollars. And sadly, that did not turn out to be that way. So you had children, you had women, you had vulnerable people trapped in these um, networks and in these in these organizations where they took so much advantage of them that they the, the end result was that they had no... Um, kind of solution to the problem that they faced. And these cases, again, when you have wars, when you have crises around the world, uh, these numbers, they just simply rise and rise. Uh, One of our shows, in in one of our shows this month, we spoke to Justine Carell, who spoke about victims of modern-day slavery, and uh, we're going to play that clip And let's see what uh, Justine had to say about this topic of modern-day slavery. We have now on the line to talk to us more about this, Justine Carroll, who is Executive Director of Unseen. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for having me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Justine. Absolutely a pleasure to have you. So, Justine, firstly, how do you define modern slavery how how is it different from what people understand by slavery when when they look at you know movies and uh, of of the old? Yeah, that that's a great question, and it's one of the questions that I get asked quite a lot. So the slavery that we're talking about today, in its simplest terms, is abuse and exploitation of one person over another, and quite often it involves profit. Um, and there's very little chance of prosecution for the perpetrators, but you know, terrible human rights outcomes for the victims. Um, and what we saw 200 years ago with the transatlantic slave trade is obviously people um, openly being held in shackles and in slavery. What we see now is much more coercive. It's threats to people's, um, you know, physical well-being. Um, it's threats to their families. It's making people and coercing and forcing them into working or criminal activity, domestic servitude, and also sexual exploitation. So uh, the number that I just read out, about 
50 million people. Do you think that sounds about right? Well, that's another great question. I mean, we we genuinely don't know. I mean, mm. these baselines are estimated in terms of what's happening across the world, but it's quite it's quite conceivable that, um, you know, we have 50 million people in some form of modern slavery throughout the world. And it is not only developing countries, it is Western countries as well. Um, and we need to raise awareness of these issues so that we can prevent more people from getting into situations where they are abused and exploited. Right. So if if you look at this issue, uh, Justine, then what, what do you think is at play here? Is it... Uh, is it the master-slave attitude, you think? It's it's the mindset that has not changed? Uh, what is what is lacking in our approach? Well, I think it's a lack of understanding. And you, you, with your first question, quite rightly pointed out, what is slavery? What does it look like now? And I think many people can't conceive that we have individuals that are in these situations. But unfortunately, we have too many people who are very happy to prey on vulnerable people. And I think the, the, the fact that anyone can be a victim because anyone can become vulnerable, I think is something that we need to bear in mind. Um, and those who are particularly vulnerable, and it could be uh, simply that they are looking for a better life or they might be homeless, they might have a drink or drug problem. Um, but we also see issues like war and unrest or climate change, in fact, creating vulnerabilities where um, communities are forced and displaced out of their um, homelands and are actually trying to find alternative ways of surviving and supporting themselves. And so vulnerabilities are created in many different ways. And as I said, it's unfortunate that we do have people who are very happy to exploit those vulnerabilities for their own profit and gain. Would you go... So far as to say that uh, in some ways, then the refugee crisis that we have here uh, and the reasons that crisis exists uh, are quite similar to uh, to slavery, modern day slavery. Well, in some circumstances, absolutely. We see, you know, the issue of trafficking and modern slavery being mm. very much conflated with smuggling. Um, you know, so we talk about small boats coming across mm. the, um, you know, the English Channel um, and that all of these people are trying to gain the system, which is just not true. Many of them are persecuted. Uh, many of them are exploited, um, you know, by leaving their, their home country. Um, and actually what we need to, to do is to hold the government to account in terms of supporting vulnerable people who do arrive in the UK um, and that we have legal routes for them to, to be able to claim asylum where that's appropriate. Um, and so we know that um, a lot of those vulnerabilities play out in many different ways. Um, and all we're asking for is that people are treated as human beings and that we are able to identify and support those who are victims of modern slavery and exploitation. Does it exist in the UK? Absolutely. I mean, we think that the uh, true scale of it in the UK is is in excess of 100,000 people. Mm. Um, we run the UK-wide Modern Slavery and Exploitation Helpline, which is open 24-7 and available to anybody who wants help or support. But the calls and contacts that we're getting in 2022 are now more than um, any other year since we opened our doors in 2016. About 10,000 contacts we're likely to receive 
uh, just in 2022 alone. Um, and things like the cost of living crisis that we will see ramping up in 2023 with more people needing access to food banks and other types of support, we do think that those vulnerabilities will increase and there is more chance that there will be um, extended uh, abuse and exploitation of individuals who are in difficult situations. So when you do receive a call, how do you help? So we, we take in calls, as I said, that's confidential and independent. And um, we have trained advisors who will take information, whether that's somebody who's in a difficult situation themselves or whether that's a member of the public that wants to report something that they've seen concerning, um, as well as working with all statutory agencies, including businesses as well. So we'll take that information in. We will assess it identify what the situation is because it's not always a situation of modern slavery it could be um, lower level labor abuse or we we sometimes get domestic violence reported kidnapping lots of different issues that come up Um, but we will put people in touch with support services on the ground where they live we can make referrals if they want to the police or other authorities where that's appropriate Um, But we work on the side of doing no harm. So we always work with the consent of the individual and and we never report to um, the authorities where that is something that would be detrimental to the individual. So, for example, uh, we don't have a connection with immigration and enforcement because uh, we want to make sure that individual is safe and well and that we can do everything we can to get them out of the situation where they're being exploited. Given that our police services are already overwhelmed, what sort of response do you usually get from police when you do report uh, um, somebody who needs help? Well, we, as you would understand, we get lots of different uh, responses to the um, information that we provide to the police. But generally, mm. they are very good at taking on board the referrals that we make through the Modern Slavery and Exploitation Helpline. So we do have a good connection with police forces across the UK. As you quite rightly mentioned, resources are tight and they're probably going to get tighter um, with some of the the moves that the uh, government will be making about austerity again. So we are really concerned that we need to keep up uh, pressure on the police and on other authorities to make sure that the people who are most vulnerable and who are likely to be or are being exploited have access to the support services that they need and that they can actually be identified whether they're in contact with a local authority or whether they're in contact around their own health through um, the NHS or whether they in fact need help and support from the police. And and that's what we do. We facilitate conversations and we advocate for people who are vulnerable to get the help and support that they need, whether that's uh, support services or whether that's through one of the statutory agencies that I've just mentioned. So Justina, the work that you're doing is absolutely amazing. I mean, there cannot be two things about it. Uh, However, what about the root causes, addressing the root causes that you mentioned, you know, disparity, uh, poverty, war, um, uh, displacement, all of those issues? Do you do any advocacy with, with the government or with the powers that be to address those? 
Yeah, another great question. You know, we we don't want to be on the treadmill where we're just continuing to pick people up and try and put Mm. them back together and, um, you know, move them on in their lives. We do need to address these root causes and there are some systemic issues um, that unless we we tackle those, we are never going to, um, you know, be able to prevent people from being abused and exploited. But that's why a lot of the work that we do at Unseen is very much around prevention strategies, working with the UK government, working with governments overseas, and crucially working with businesses, because businesses have um, the resources, they have the ability to address these situations sometimes on the ground when we're looking at issues of forced labour and child labour, not just here in the UK, but across the rest of the world as well. So that's definitely an area of work that Unseen um, is very much focused on, working with others within the sector to ensure that the UK government and other governments are taking this issue seriously and they're actually addressing the risks that mean that more vulnerable people can be prevented from entering a life of exploitation. How big a problem do you think modern slavery is compared to other uh, myriad of the challenges that we have today? Yeah, I think it is a significant um, issue because of the uh, the scale of it. You know, we, we've talked mm. about 50 million people across the globe um, and actually it prevents people from moving on in their lives and, and finding a better life for themselves because they are completely, um, you know, controlled by by somebody else. Um, so, so I do think it's a significant issue. Um, and like I said, it affects every single country and every single community. Um, you know, here in the UK, we see many, many different nationalities of potential victims who are affected by this. But we see lots of British nationals as well. Um, and so it's not something that's seen, you know, as only a migrant issue. It's very much an issue that is ingrained in the way we live our lives. And, um, you know, unless we tackle it head on, we are always going to be picking the pieces up. So can you help me understand, uh, Justin, you, you mentioned a British national. Why would a British national not try to approach the police directly? Because, again, it's about the psychological controls. It's Mm. about uh, these individuals will target those with vulnerabilities. So if you're homeless or you have a drink or drug problem or you have a mental health um, issue, then you can be targeted and, you know, um, the threats of violence will prevent you from going to the police. So we see lots of individuals and young people in particular being targeted by criminal gangs. Once you're embroiled in... Um, that situation, it's extremely difficult for you to get out. And if you are faced with threats of violence to your family as well as to yourself, then you're less likely to want to go to the police because quite often those criminal gangs will know where you live. And so, you know, you do have a very real fear of that threat being carried out. So it's a lot around psychological controls rather than physical controls. Um, you know, in terms of the, the types of slavery and exploitation that we see here in the UK. And that's why no community, no national is, um, you know, um, not able to, to kind of remove themselves from the situation. So I think we just need to be aware that any nationality, any member of any community could end up in a, an exploitative situation. 
Thank you very much to Justine Corral, who spoke uh, to us and uh, Brother Daniel about victims of modern-day slavery. Although we are approaching the end of 2022, modern-day slavery still remains a reality for us in this world and even in the UK. Circumstances of people, people lead them in some way or another to get stuck within the cycle of slavery, something that Justine was just talking about. Therefore, it is our responsibility to keep our minds and eyes open and become a support for those people who may need us. Today, we discussed various ways in which we may be able to tackle modern modern slavery. However, in Islam, even thousands of years ago, Muslims were told the following, O Messenger, are you aware of a religious precept, which may be likened to a great ascent upon a mountain, by which a person is able to climb to the heights of divine nearness? If you are unaware, then we tell you that it is the freeing of a slave." True virtue in the estimation of God is that an individual believes in God, spends in his cause for love of him uh, on the kindred and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and for freeing slaves. Coming up uh, is the five o'clock news and then we'll be back and we're going to speak about keeping warm in the winter as well as NHS privatization here at the five o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the last show, uh, the last drive time show of the year 2022. We are looking back at some of the highlights and some of the shows that we aired here in the month of December. The winter of 2022 seemed more uncertain than usual this year. Usually wintertime and the holiday season is defined by a chillier temperature, various festivities, a break from school and work and settling down with your family to bring in the end of the new year, bring in the end of the year. And this year, however, following the long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, the disruptions of global supply chains because of political events such as the Ukraine war, the cost of living crisis, rising energy bills, increased rent, and even threat of winter energy blackouts, winter 2022 looked rather treacherous. Wintertime and the holidays usually mean festivities and people become very giving in this time. The fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizam Asura, Hamid, may Allah strengthen his hand. He said in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty has repeatedly instructed true believers to fulfill the rights of mankind and to help all those in need or who face difficulties of any kind. The Quran has particularly emphasized the need to help the most vulnerable members of society, such as those who are mired in poverty. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that the very meaning of faith was to desire goodness and to be sincere towards others and to fulfill their rights. People often think of others and desire good to each other, especially as we have time to reflect in the shorter, darker and colder parts of the year. So, what happens in the colder weather? Why is there a need to adapt to seasonal changes. Well, James Gallagher, uh, an inside health presenter at BBC4, took up the challenge to see what happens to the body when exposed to an unheated room. At just 10 degrees, his body was monitored, as were his symptoms. And when the temperature drops, the body works harder to pump blood around. The heart rate and blood pressure increases, but also uh, the blood flow to the brain decreases, meaning it is far harder to concentrate or to be, you know, able to to think effectively. The blood flow to the brain decreased by 20%. Keep in mind, this is at just 10 degrees. And these changes are profound, but also important as 
Ten degrees is the average temperature that people will be living in if they can't afford to heat their homes. So we have thought about it's just well, it's going to be cold. People won't be able to afford to heat their homes, so it's either eat or heat. But it's not just about the temperature. It's the heart rate. It's the blood pressure. It's about if you are able to think effectively or not. So cold weather also makes viruses and illnesses more common. It is easier for viruses to spread because we're more likely to meet up indoors with the window shut and no fresh air to, you know, blow viruses away. The cold also makes it easier for viruses to survive outside the body, and cold air contains less virus-trapping moisture. So dry air even allows viruses to travel further distances. And we've seen how many people have this very, very nasty cough at the moment, especially children um, with fever and just you know general um, cold and flu symptoms. But if you've noticed, I'm not sure if you have, but I certainly know that in my friend circle and family circles, apologies for that, um, it is uh, n- not severe, but it's just staying longer. The cough, which usually goes away after a week or so, it stays for up to, you know, two, three, even more weeks. So we spoke to Emma Rubak, um, one of our guests from uh, for, for one of the shows that we... Uh, did on cold-related illnesses uh, such as pneumonia. And this is what Emma, Emma had to say. Let's have a listen to that. Our first guest speaker uh, who is with us, and uh, <clears throat> uh, she's Emma Rubach from uh, Asthma and Lung UK. And uh, uh, just a little brief introduction of Emma is a head of health advice at Asthma UK, the only charity in the UK fighting for everyone with a lung condition, aiming for a world where everyone can breathe with healthy lungs. We fund research, we provide advice and support for the 12 million people who will get a lung condition during their lifetime. We campaign for clean air and for better NHS diagnosis and treatment. So now we'll speak to Emma. Thank you very much, Emma, for joining us. Hello, are you with Thank us? You. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Emma, you know, your analysis revealed that the UK has more death from pneumonia than anywhere else in the Europe and one of the highest death rates. Please tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about what a pneumonia is and the signs and symptoms of it. So um, pneumonia often comes on after another infection like flu or COVID-19. Um, and it's when the little air sacs in your lungs fill with fluid, which makes it very hard to breathe. So uh, the signs and symptoms of pneumonia, it's basically like having a really awful chest infection. So the main symptom would be coughing, um, but you can deteriorate very fast. So you can get bad very quickly and um, find things like you might find that you don't feel you want to eat very much. You're pale, you're shivery, you have a fever. Um, If things get worse, then unfortunately you can end up coughing up blood, feeling pain in your chest. Uh, really not wanting to do very much, feeling very weak and fatigued. So those are the signs of pneumonia. Um, And if you think you have them, then we're urging people to get medical help as quickly as possible. Um, So speak to your GP or call 111. Um, And of course, if you're having difficulty breathing, then make sure you call 999. Why is pneumonia especially of concern this winter in light of the current state of NHS, the existence of COVID and the housing crisis? Is there anyone more at risk? 
So unfortunately, people with uh, long-term conditions, uh, including respiratory conditions like asthma and COPD, are more at risk of pneumonia, um, as are older people and uh, young children and babies. Um, and we're particularly worried this year because of all of the extra pressure on the NHS, um, meaning that um, if people do get very ill, they may find it more difficult to get treatment. This doesn't mean that you should avoid trying to get treatment if you are ill. Um, but at the same time, we want to make sure that people are doing everything they can to protect themselves against pneumonia. So there are a few simple things that you can do. The most important thing is to make sure you're um, getting your vaccine. So you can get a pneumonia vaccine if you're eligible, if you have a long-term condition, or if you're older than 65 um, or um, a young child, then you'll be offered it as a matter of course. Uh, you can also try to make sure that you're getting your flu vaccine this year um, and your COVID-19 vaccine if you're eligible. Um, if you do have a respiratory condition or another long-term condition um, or you're elderly, then these are offered free on the NHS. And it's really worth taking them up this year because, as I was saying, uh, pneumonia is often the result of another infection like flu or COVID-19. And so if you can avoid catching um, those infections in the first place, then you're much more able to avoid pneumonia. And that, that, so that's a great way of doing it. And the other things to make sure you're doing are obviously practicing good hand hygiene, you know, hand washing, using hand sanitizer, um, and perhaps thinking about avoiding very, very busy, crowded places for long periods of time if you know that you're particularly vulnerable um, uh, to uh, respiratory infections. Why is winter weather so um, closely associated with this uh, infection? Well, it's interesting. So... We're not sure why exactly, but we do know that um, for every drop in a, a degree under five degrees, then we see um, respiratory visits to hospital go up. Um, and we see about a 10% rise um, in doctor's appointments for respiratory problems uh, for every degree under five degrees. So cold weather is definitely associated with an increase in respiratory infections and therefore um, increased incidence of, of pneumonia. Um, and particularly this year, we're really worried about people not heating their houses, um, partly perhaps because they're scared that they can't afford to. And if that is you, then please make sure you are um, getting the help that's available, um, contacting organisations and trying to get support. But um, also it might be the case that I think some people are possibly interpreting public or interpreting messages about conserving energy um, and uh, not being able, some people not being able to afford to heat their homes as a message that everybody should not heat their homes. I think it's really important if you're older, frail, uh, if you have a lung, if you have a lung condition, to keep your home warm if you possibly can. Um, this just generally supports your body and your immune system and helps you stay well. Does the uh, those who are suffering from asthma do are they at more risk as well with the winter? Yes. Yeah, so. Um, Asthma obviously is a very, very common um, respiratory condition and many people find that they are triggered by various different winter problems. So cold weather, um, the drop in air temperature can trigger asthma attacks. Uh, respiratory viruses like cold and flu, which are obviously circulating a lot at this time of year, um, can also trigger asthma attacks. So asthma is a re uh, winter is a really difficult time for people with asthma. Um, and our specific message, if you have asthma, is obviously to make sure that you're getting your vaccines if you're eligible. So everybody who has a brown preventer inhaler is eligible for a free flu vaccine. Um, 
depending on your age or your other uh, conditions, long-term conditions, you might also be able to get the pneumonia vaccine and the COVID-19 vaccine. It's really worth doing that. And then also making sure that you are taking your brown inhaler um, regularly as prescribed because that will help manage the inflammation in your lungs. Um, and then if you do get a cold or flu, um, then it will mean that you're less likely to suffer from a potentially fatal asthma attack on top of suffering from flu or a cold at the same time. Um, uh, Emma, uh, as uh, you are expert in this field, uh, what sort of food you would recommend for people with asthma or any lung conditions? Is there any particular um, type of food which will help them? So it's just a question of making sure that you're eating a really varied diet with lots of um, healthy fruit and vegetables. Um, there aren't any specific things that you shouldn't eat. So some people with asthma uh, may feel that uh, dairy, for example, um, makes their asthma worse or um, creates more mucus, but this isn't actually scientifically proven. Um, instead, the message really is just to make sure you're getting a really wide variety of um, fruit and vegetables, and that will really help you look after your immune system. Um, and also... The other messages um, around, I know it's difficult at this time of year, but trying to avoid stress. Um, being stressed does make you more vulnerable to respiratory um, viruses, um, things like colds and flu, which can obviously set off asthma attacks. Um, or if you have COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, then um, similarly getting a virus can cause a real flare-up of your symptoms, and that's what we want to avoid this year. So, yes, eating healthily, making sure you're getting your vaccines, avoiding um, stress around Christmas time, all of that. Those are the kind of things you can do to help yourself stay well. Thank you very much for your advice. I think uh, that was very useful and um, everybody can benefit out of that. Thank you, Emma, for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. All right, that was Emma Rubach. And speaking about cold-related illnesses such as pneumonia, this interview was conducted by Hafiz Anik and Dr. Bacha. Thank you very much to the brothers as well. So the question uh, we want to ask and talk about is why is winter harder this year? Canada and America, you listen to the news, you've seen the pictures are currently in the grip of an extreme cold weather storm which has killed more than 80 people here in the UK. According to the Guardian, weather forecasters have predicted that this year, whilst there may be a brief cold snap in the beginning of December, on the whole, our winter has been and will be quite mild in comparison to past more legendary winters such as 2009 when we had two or three heavy snowfalls and a lot of icy temperatures. So in this case, we will have a milder and more rainy winter with uh, not so cold temperatures. However, the fallout of COVID alongside Brexit and the Ukraine war has had other issues. The UK is currently having a cost of living crisis, meaning that people have become poorer due to high inflation and increased tax rates. Food, for example, has increased in price by 14%. In September, it was revealed that one in five families were facing food insecurity. And millions did not eat properly or were forced to skip meals during the day. In addition to this, households are facing higher energy bills. And even so, there are still threats that households may also face three-hour winter blackouts due to energy supply disruptions. I'm not sure if that has happened anywhere in the country, but so far so good. 
For this reason, even though the weather isn't as drastic as it might seem, the economy certainly is. Islamically speaking, the concept of zakat is a wonderful remedy for social issues such as these. Zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam and a religious duty of all Muslims to give from what they have to those in need. The command of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that zakat should be taken from the rich and given to the poor, denotes that the basic principle of zakat is sympathy for mankind and helping the poor. From the details given by the Holy Quran, it becomes quite clear that the underlying idea is the support of the poor and not the hoarding by a few. Seasonally, it is a blessing to be able to adapt to the changing periods of the year. Each season has its own blessings. And in wintertime, we have the chance to reflect, to reform, to rest and spend time with our families. The shorter days and colder temperature gives us you know, a little bit more time to spend with ourselves and to make any changes we might want for the coming year and the better seasons. Well, whilst winter 2022 might seem bleak at the end of a trickier two years marked by COVID and many global issues, it does not have to be the case at all. There are so many ways to act and take action in order to keep warm. The Holy Quran states, So give to the kinsman his due and to the needy and to the wayfarer. That is best for you, for those who seek the favor of Allah, and it is they who will prosper. Whatever you pay as interest, that it may increase the wealth of the people, it does not increase in the sight of Allah. But whatever you give in zakat, seeking the favor of Allah, it is these who will increase their wealth manifold. A Muslim is encouraged to partake in charity. He is enjoined to give zakat and is reminded of the importance of giving gifts. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that a Muslim should give gifts as it promotes love between people. And the Holy Quran also mentions frequently the importance of giving zakat as it provides for the expenditures of the Islamic government and fulfills the needs of the poor. Finally, the Holy Quran says, and do not forget to do good to one another. So it doesn't matter which season of the year it is. It doesn't matter which year it is. It's the previous or this one. We've seen that it is always good to treat each other with respect, to always look out for those who are vulnerable in society, for those who don't have as much as maybe you have, and to share when it comes to um, you know anything in, in, in life. Because, well what's what's there to look forward to how can we make our lives better how can we improve the lives of other people by helping in society and we see this that the uptake of voluntary work throughout uh, society has gone up um, unfortunately because people are in a very very difficult situation a lot more people are in need of food banks and whatnot but it doesn't really matter what time of the year it is. This is something that maybe you should put on that um, list of New Year's resolutions as well. Now, we are going to move on to, I think it's the second last topic that we want to discuss and maybe reflect upon, and that is about the NHS. In chapter 16, verse 91, God Almighty states that verily Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgression. He admonished you that you may take heed. The UK's National Health Services, NHS, is known for the service that it provides to help patients. 
It was introduced in 1948 and was intended to cover most medical bills so that those who were living in poverty or were uninsured could be treated. Healthcare is available for everyone in the UK without any costs for treatments. And the NHS provides doctors and nurses with job security and great progression and experience opportunities. However, I'm sure you knew that there's a however or a but coming, a large-scale nationalized healthcare system means that there are many people to cater to and to, and so there are many limitations as well as strengths. This means that many doctors and nurses are under a lot of pressure and dealing with a lot more patients with less staff. Just right now on the 5 o'clock news, you might have heard that because of the flu season, the NHS is at a breaking point. In recent months, there has been an increase in talks regarding the privatization of the NHS, which has led to a debate about whether or not this would be beneficial. Many doctors have expressed their concern over the privatization of the NHS, which has mostly been because private healthcare establishments have the ability to destabilize NHS services. In the short term, if private providers are motivated solely by profits, then they may be less likely to provide effective care and could possibly cut corners in order to reduce costs. On the other hand, it is believed that a healthcare system that is completely publicly funded is not suitable in the long term, given the rapid increase in life expectancy and advancements in technology which have made medicine even more expensive. Furthermore, incorporating private healthcare services will introduce competition that in return can lower costs for patients. So there's two sides to the coin. We spoke with Dr. Tony Sullivan, about why he thinks the NHS NHS should not be privatised. And this is what Dr. Sullivan had to say. Uh, Dr. Tony O'Sullivan is a co-chair of Keep Our NHS Public and a retired consultant paediatrician as well. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show, Tony. Good evening. Thank you very much for speaking to me. Thank you so much for, for, for accepting our invitation as well. Um, Can you start off by telling our listeners why do you think that the NHS should stay public? Well, the NHS as a form of healthcare, it gives security, or or used to, I should say, gives security for everybody on a very democratic basis, shared from public funds, uh, so that healthcare is available to people without the fear of not being able to afford it. Mm. And without the profit motive distorting how care is delivered. Mm. And, it, and it, it used to be, um, it, it was very, very good value for money. Uh, when the NHS has been funded properly, it's been able to give a wide range of, a, a comprehensive level of services. And for example, in 2009, uh, it has had nine or 10 years of catching up funding from the previous government. Mm. Um, and, it, for example, A&E waits were less than four hours in 95% of cases. Wow. And people were referred and treated within 18 weeks of a referral in 90% of cases. Mm. So when it's well-funded, it was found yeah. to be uh, the, the, the best care in the world, the most sort of democratically accessible, if you, you, know, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Everybody had the same access to it and everybody as your previous caller i'm afraid i missed most of it but the last point you made mm. it was uh, the same level of care as in the private sector so that's my motivation for it it's not it's not a moral question alone 
yeah. I think it is a, a, in, in a, on a certain level it's a democratic form of providing health care but it's also very cost effective and it, of course keeps the when it's when it's looked after as a service it keeps the population as healthy as possible Absolutely. Okay. so uh, doctor I wanted to ask you know uh, I, I, st- I still have a mixed opinion regarding this for example you know you said um, 18 weeks um, was the uh, time for referral but you know if someone is private um, they, that um, treatment is it gets done quicker than 18 weeks so shouldn't should it not be privatized for just bec- just because you can see a doctor quicker than 18 weeks well what i was talking about there was the performance on average for everybody yes. so more urgent care was seen more urgently okay and i mean it wasn't perfect but it was getting better and and the cancer weight for example you know you, you the, the 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 standard is to be seen after referral by your GP, if there's a concern that it may be cancer within two weeks, and when the NHS is performing well, that's what was delivered. Um, the, the the private sector has always existed in this mm-hmm. country, uh, and I just think it's important to say that you know I, I, I don't I've never worked in the private sector myself, um, but. The private sector has always existed. But when the NHS was funded very well and when access to care on average was very, very good mm-hmm. and when em- emergency care was seen urgently, then the private sector carried on in the background and those that have the money and those that wanted to could go privately if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But actually, it wasn't an expanding sector because the NHS was available for everybody, actually, actually rich and poor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I mean, uh, Dr. Tony, you mentioned that um, free healthcare, a free healthcare system, and I mean, it seems ideal, and it is ideal, of course, when it is funded as well, funded properly, and when it's backed by, you know, by, by the government as well, especially when there's no cuts and uh, there's no, there's no one leave, the staff aren't leaving as well. Um, but do you think that if, you know, if, supposedly if it is privatized, um, I mean, if it becomes a privatized system altogether, it will speed up the process, um, sort of, you know, the, the, the waiting, the waiting uh, hours or even the queues for to actually get referred or do you think that, that that will have an effect on it or do you think or what's your opinion on this? Well, there's two ways of answering it, really. One is that when the NHS was funded well, there weren't those long waits. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and the second thing is that the long queues have, have been created by the political direction of the government since 2010. Uh, and actually, the, the long queue isn't a function of a health service that's public. It's a function of underfunding. Mm. And, and if you underfunded the private sector, you, you'd have long waits. Yeah. But, but the other side of it is that the private sector is in it for money, mm-hmm. yeah. and and um, but the staff that the staff that provide the operations or the opinions in outpatients in the private sector, the vast vast majority of them are health, are NHS staff, doing extra sessions in the private sector. Right. Now, if they want, if they choose to do that, I've never done that. I've chosen not to do that. I didn't see any need to do that. Mm-hmm. My commitment was to a public service for the population as a whole. You know, rich, poor, black, white, whatever. Yeah. I thought this was my duty as a 
as a relatively privileged, trained professional earning well, I should I should invest my care in the public service. But um, the, the, the people that work for the private sector who are driven there, for example, nurses, um, support staff, theatre technicians who are going there because their funding has been cut by 20% over the last 10 years, their, their take-home value of pay, mm-hmm. they, they are going there because of the government policy of stressing the NHS. Mm. Uh, and um, it, uh, private sector treatment has the danger of a two-tier system. Okay. And yeah. of course, can I just say one, one other thing? Yes, the, yes. The, NH, the NHS isn't free. Uh, we, we pay for it, so uh, that, that's that's a point that people say. You know, why should we? Why can we afford free healthcare? Mm-hmm. Actually, it isn't. It isn't free. Mm-hmm. The point is, it, it's free at the point when you need it, mm-hmm. uh, and it's paid for collectively uh, from each according to their their, their wealth. You yeah. know, so I, I as a consultant pediatrician in the health service, paid quite rightly paid a lot more money into the social purse for the health system and mm-hmm. for other things like education than somebody who was um, unemployed or on a much lower wage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Dr. Ben, you know, a question arises from this is, for example, um, if I'm healthy and uh, I don't need uh, uh, health care as such, why do I, ha- I have to pay um, X amount of money for someone who is ill and uh, like he has cancer? Obviously, that treatment is more expensive. So let's say if, if cancer is £1,000, for my regular checkup, it's one pound. So why do I have to um, uh, um, help out that other person in the public funding? Who, who are you asking? I'm sorry. Are I'm, I'm, you, doctor? Uh, me, me. I'm yes. sorry. I, I yes. beg your pardon. I, I, no problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, um, I, I, I think this is a democratic principle that, mm-hmm. that, um, that I'm sure a lot of people in Islam would, would also aspire to, that you look after the people that need it yes um, and you you pay for everybody pays into the the national purse for public services knowing that one day they or their relative or their child uh, but certainly they themselves may need that they may be healthy now mm. uh, and they may have cancer tomorrow or, mm-hmm. or they may be, they may be knocked down and injured or they may go in to have a, a, a mental health crisis that they weren't expecting. So it, it's a question of social solidarity, if you like, Perfect. where uh, we, we we pay into a system so that we don't have to worry, even if we don't need it now, mm. one day we will need it. And actually everybody needs the health service, even if you can't remember it when you were born. <laughs> you, <laughs> need, you need the health service. I mean, it's something that we don't even realize, isn't it? We, we, I don't know if you heard this as well, but we were talking about this earlier on in the show as well, that... If we look over the pond in in America, we they if they you know if a woman wants to give birth, they have to pay they have to pay for that as well. Even calling the ambulance, they need to they need to pay for that as well. So there are some things which we sort of take for granted um, sometimes yeah. here, here in the UK as well. I mean, we're privileged to have these services as well. Um, Doctor Tony, do you think that you know the way that the government is going, um, they can continue to sustain the NHS? I mean, of course. They need to back the funding as well, but do you think that's something that that's on their agenda? Uh, I think that they have made a political choice 
and they believe that they want to cut back public spending for from the state for public services and it's not just health it's also social care which is almost entirely privatized and education and transport and power and and energy and water and they believe that uh, the individual should pay pay their way um, by individual choice now I, I fundamentally disagree with that mm-hmm. we can afford the health service I think we can we cannot afford not to have a health service. Mm. We need a healthy population. We need an educated population. Ed- education is the is the, probably the greatest contribution to social equality yes. that there is. An educated person is is more likely to be supportive of you know justice women's rights mm. anti anti racism and so on so yeah. but i'm i'm going off the point here but the, the the government is making a choice to drive um the efficiency of the public health service down and has pr- deliberately promoted private provision providing services for nhs patients so they're taking money away from building back the health service to what it should be and actually they're giving the private health companies mm-hmm. a, a real bonanza at the moment their, their profits mm-hmm. have, have, have zoomed especially since covid and the rather squalid contracts that were given to the private sector perfect dr tony uh, thank you so much for for speaking to us today it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you uh, thank you once again and uh, have a lovely day well, thank you very much. It's been a privilege to talk to you. Thank Absolutely. you. Likewise. That was Dr. Tony O'Sullivan about why he thinks the NSS should not be privatized. And lastly, we are going to move on to our last topic and last review of this month. Every day, 6,000 people become carers, but often it's not something they have planned for. This year, Career Carers' Rights Day was held on the 24th of November to focus on supporting people to prepare for the future through the theme Caring for Your Future. Carers' Rights Day was held to make carers aware of their rights and let carers know where to get help and support, raise awareness of the needs of carers, and according to new research undertaken by Center for Care Colleagues, released that every year 4.3 million people become unpaid carers. That's 12,000 people a day. With the current cost of living crisis, carers are facing unprecedented pressure on their finances. A quarter of carers, you know, 25% are cutting back on essentials like food and 63% are extremely worried about managing their monthly costs. The fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Azam Zatahra Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on his soul, has said that the responsibility for care of the aged is gradually shifting to the state. Care of the aged represents a heavy burden on the national economy. However, much a state is ready to spend, it can never buy them peace and contentment. The most terrible feeling of having been rejected, left out and abandoned, and the most painful realization of a growing void of loneliness within are problems beyond the reach of many to resolve. To consider that a comparatively remote relative would ever be taken care of by the rest of the family has become almost impossible to imagine. In predominantly Muslim countries, however, much values may have deteriorated. The condition which prevails in the rest of the contemporary society is unthinkable. It is considered a disgrace and dishonor for the old and aged to be treated with such disrespect and callousness. 
It is a matter of shame for most Muslims to hand over their responsibilities of elderly relatives to the state, even if the state is willing to look after them. As such, the role of a Muslim woman amidst her home and family is far from over with the coming of age of the children. She remains deeply bonded to the past as well as to the future. It is her kind of it is it is her kind and humane concern and her innate ability to look after those who stand in need of care, which comes to the rescue of the older members of society. They remain as precious and respected as before and continue to be integral members of the family. The mother plays a major part in looking after them and providing them with her company, not as um, drudgery and tedium, but as natural expression of human kinship. Thus, when she grows older, she can rest assured that such a society will not eject her nor leave her abandoned as a relic of the past. Now, we are going to listen to one final audio, uh, and that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, and that audio is... Uh, of one of our guests that we spoke to, Emily Holtzhausen, OBE, who spoke with us about the impact of the cost of living crisis on unpaid carers. And let's see what Emily had to say about this. Uh, so we're joined by Emily Holz, uh, sorry, Holzhausen, who, uh, OBE, who is Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Carers UK. Peace be upon you, uh, Emily. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Thank you very much. Thank you for the welcome. Um, so we're talking about, you know, uh, carers, uh, our unsung heroes. Um, I mean, can you tell us, I mean, we uh, have already, you know, just, just right at the top of the show, you know, quoted some stats there, 4.3 million carers or 4.3 million uh, people who have become carers are unpaid, right? So, you know, you, 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 you're a director of policy at uh, Carers UK. I mean, can you tell us some of uh, the work that you as an organisation do? Sure, sure. And, um, I mean, when we're talking about unpaid caring, it's something that most of us will do in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it comes, you know, as part and parcel of family life. And uh, people see it as very important to do, to give back to people who might have given to you. And to help people live as as long as possible, for as, as well as possible within families. Mm -hmm. um, but it's but but people don't always recognise what they do, and it can take a real toll on your health and well-being. So, as a charity, we were set up. Oh goodness, um, uh, just over fifty years ago, uh, and we really started because people uh, felt um, left behind and forgotten. Mm. And we started to do several things. The first thing was to campaign for an independent income because uh, many women had given up work in order to care and had, had nothing left as, as a result of it, um, generally unmarried women. And um, uh, we started to connect people as well uh, who felt very lonely and isolated. And the third thing we did was provide people with information and advice. You know, how how do I how do I navigate my way through all of this and support for my relatives, but also how can I look after myself so I am the best I can be, if you like, and and uh, mm -hmm. look after my health and well-being. And we're still the same kind of organisation. We've got forty-five thousand members. There are local carers organisations that we keep up to date, and we. Absolutely, campaign for better awareness and changes that we really need to see to make everybody's paths much better in life as well. 
Hmm. I suppose, though, Emily, that it has to be, say, for instance, if you were a new carer, um, like you said before, um, there has, I mean, it's incumbent upon us to look after our extended family. Uh, I know for myself that that is definitely the case. Not maybe not for every family, right? But you know where? So I suppose you, as a carer for um, elderly relatives, maybe your parents, um, you know, other relatives that who are dependent upon you and live in, say, for instance, the same household. You, I suppose, would have to make a value judgment as to right. Okay, is this part of my remit as just a normal household, a normal family to look after my my parents anyway, or you know where does it cross the line to being actually? I need to have some kind of external help,、uh, whether it be financial, whether it be more、um, you know more in terms of you know mental health. Because you know a lot of、uh, carers do suffer from mental health issues, yeah. Because you know they, they're lost in themselves, yeah. Because their time is devoted to looking after、um, you know whoever their dependent is. Absolutely, I think、um, I think where it feels like it's part and parcel of life, you might start advocating for the person that you're. Your,、um, or just making sure they're okay. You know、mm-hmm. what I mean.、Um, if something comes on gradually, then you just be checking on them and、um, uh, trying to make life, you know, as, as well as possible for somebody and trying to support them through the health system or making sure they can still take part in the community. If, if dementia is changing the way that they feel, but there might come a point where you start thinking, "Hang on a minute,、mm, it's too much." Starting to get. Well,、uh, much more complicated. It can be very, you know, the different different conditions can be very stressful、mm-hmm. um, and or, or distressing, perhaps. You know, when somebody you love is in 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 a lot of pain, or they they lose the ability to do what they used to do, and、um, you know, your relationship、mm-hmm. with them can change. I think what I would say is the first thing is that we know that caring can cause extra costs.、Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe sometimes different food. Or taking you know different more trips out to see doctors or the hospital,、uh, there might be more costs, more household costs in terms of heating or laundry or something like that. And this is where even if you don't buy in extra care or get extra help,、um, these are already costs within the household. And so the first thing I would say is that you know you need to look to see whether your older relative might be entitled to something called attendance allowance. Or if they're under state pension age, then、um, have a look to see if they're entitled to personal independence payment, which is a disability benefit, and that is designed to help with those extra costs.、Mm-hmm. And it's it's really important that people think about that and look into that really early,、mm-hmm. because、um, a it takes time to apply, and b these costs can can mount up over time,、um, and it's there to help people. So. Not that neither of them are means tested. So whatever income you've got, it doesn't matter.、Um, there are a number of qualifying criteria, so you have to have a look at what they are. But there's some also really good local sources of support and advice.、Um, local educators are absolutely brilliant, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.、Um, and you can go online. So that's the first thing that I would say. And then the second thing is 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 really understanding someone's condition very. Well, if they share that information with you, or if they have a diagnosis,、um, and that can help to manage different、um, aspects of their condition. 
Now, there might be other situations where this all happens overnight and it can be a big shock, a heart attack or a stroke or a car accident or something like that. And it's very, you know, that's you, you're thrown into a different mm-hmm. world very quickly. And that is where it's so important to get really good information and advice about the medication. Mm, and the help that's available. Yes, absolutely. If mm-hmm. someone offers, then think about it carefully and and and, and say yes. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but in a way that's right for you, you know, it's really mm. important because sometimes people worry and feel very guilty about taking on help that somehow you know, you should be doing it all and you should be managing it all. But then in fact, if it impacts on your health and well-being, you 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 can't always do as much as you want to or mm-hmm. care for somebody and also you know you in turn might need support so it makes sense to to look after yourself mm. and to make sure that you can t- continue doing the other things like if you if you've got work as well to to continue juggling work um for as long as that is possible whilst you have the support in as well so it's it's um it's important to, once you have information, you can also make different decisions. You know what I mean? You're mm-hmm. in control of those decisions rather than um, uh, the world deciding around you, if you see what I mean. Mm. Mm-hmm. Emily, so we know that, you know, rising costs have impacted everyone, but why are, you know, carers facing high financial stress, and especially, you know, uh, those carers who, who are unpaid? Absolutely. So if we just talk about unpaid carers mm-hmm. for a moment, because um, that's who we really represent. Yeah. Um, as I was talking before, we've got extra costs. So um, uh, extra costs of heating, mm-hmm. of laundry, of trips out um, to difficult medical professionals, special food sometimes because people can't eat certain things. Um, mm-hmm. Or some people might be quite particular about what they eat. And it's it's really tough. And if you're caring full time, you also don't have the ability to to necessarily work full time. Mm-hmm. So the ability to earn within the family is then reduced, which means that um, uh, you're much more vulnerable to different different costs. Mm-hmm. And that what we've seen, for example, is uh, carers on lower incomes, about four in ten are in debt. They're borrowing from family and friends. It's very stressful and it's mm. impacting on their health and well-being as well. So right. unpaid carers is definitely seeing these rising costs. Then if we talk about unpaid care workers, they're on a very low wage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and that is a problem. That's a real problem when money gets tight. So that's why we're, we've called, along with lots of other organisations, for extra payments from government to help with these rising costs. Mm-hmm. And quite a few families are covered when it comes to people who provide unpaid care. About 60% of, of of families who get carers allowance are covered. But there's this other group who are not. So they're, we're we're campaigning to have to have them um, have them come covered by government. But we know that some of the some of the increases, like we'll see an increase in carers allowance, that's not going to come through until. Uh, uh, next year so mm-hmm. people have got to weather these higher prices at the moment which is really tricky and, and with, with cold snaps like we've got right now you know, it's a real worry isn't it about having having mm-hmm. the heating on now some extra money has come down from government and um, 
there are also local schemes that if people are really, really struggling and there's an unpaid carer in the family, then go to your local authority and ask and ask for extra help um, because uh, you you might you might be eligible. Mm. I mean, uh, Emily, with that, I mean, you, you you specified there's that distinction between unpaid carers and actually care workers. I mean, mm. both are being impacted. Uh, with this cost of living crisis uh, and things are you know just you know becoming tough for everybody and you know as we know it uh, or as we know from the news you've got all different sectors public sectors striking currently uh, asking for uh, an equitable I wouldn't say uh, what a lot of the uh, media outlets are saying you know these union barons asking for ridiculous sums but I actually personally think it's uh, equitable amounts as according to their own costs, right? So if, say, for instance, you know, the government's been so, let's say, miserish or <laughs> regarding uh, giving these extra payments out, you know, it must be the same for carers, uh, whether they be unpaid or care workers. I mean, what's your charity doing to, you know, step in and maybe kind of like uh, fill in that shortfall? Sure. I mean, one one thing we can't do is not grant living bodies, so mm-hmm. unfortunately we can't do that. But there are, you know, we've definitely signposted to other organisations that do, um, and campaigning. Well, making sure that you know, campaigning for government to fill those gaps, but also making sure that people are claiming what they're entitled to. There's there's all sorts of different things within the system, like council tax discounts, which might apply to some people if they're living in smaller households or some of the benefits that I talked about earlier, you know, they can be a gateway to other help in other areas, for example, with energy bills. So it's really important that people claim everything they're entitled to in terms of benefits and support. So, for example, if you get a disability benefit, then you can get an extra payment to help with heating at the Mm -hmm. moment. And those sorts of things really matter. When it comes to care workers, one of the challenges we have is that because of the low wages of care workers and you know, caring for somebody who is dis- disabled or old, is a, you know, it's a really honourable, valuable profession, um, but it's quite often paid at a low, low rate. And as a result, some people, there are a lot of vacancies at the moment, about 165,000 vacancies. Wow. Mm-hmm. People are leaving, obviously, to find jobs that pay more to support their family. But that then, in turn, it means that there's it's much more challenging to find that support that you need. Mm-hmm. So if you need a break to go out with the shops and you need somebody to, to help with your disabled son or something like that, it becomes much harder to find somebody um, to... To help and provide to provide everyday care, right. um, and it's it's a problem. You know, it's it's looking after older generation is an issue that 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 every country around the world faces without mm. without exception. Mm. Um, but it's something we need to see tackled very urgently. Right. So Emily, you talked to us about too the you know um, care have to face high financial stress. And along with that, they have to, you know, um, they have to sometime 
they feel very tired or they they depressed about something or they're struggling to manage their own physical and mental health. Can you tell us about um, Care or Leave Bill? What is what it yes. is about? Yes, so the Carers Leave Bill is currently going through Parliament and it it really, so you talked about sort of the stress and that's particularly where people mm-hmm. are juggling work and care. And the Carers Leave Bill would give up to five days unpaid carers leave mm-hmm. for all employees in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So some people are saying, well, you know, it's unpaid. Um wouldn't be, it be better if it was paid? Of course, of <laughs> course. But, you know, that goes without saying. But but we don't have any rights like that for unpaid carers at the moment in the workplace. So what it does as a start is every employer would have to think about unpaid carers in their workforce, which is a real, really big improvement. And then if people do need to take that time off to take somebody to a health appointment, or to arrange care, or there might be something really important that needs to happen in the family um, with regard to older or disabled relatives. You can you can offer that time off, and um, and at the moment, what's being proposed that you have to give the same amount of notice as annual leave. So um, mm-hmm. it's it's not you know it's not you don't have to ask months in advance if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. It so can we be quite see it really. Yeah, it can be quite quick and mm-hmm. quite flexible as well. They're proposing sort of half a day or something like that. So good for you as an individual because you don't necessarily want to take a whole day, but also good for the employer to flex around it. Mm-hmm. So we think this is really important to see people in the fact that, you know, you have a, it's not just life and the sort of support that you need throughout your working life. It's not just about children. It continues later into mm-hmm. your life as well, caring for disabled and older relatives. Now, at the moment, this is going through uh, Parliament, and it's what's called a private member's bill. So that means that a particular MP has had to take it because it's not government legislation. So it's Wendy Chamberlain, who's a Liberal Democrat MP for um, North East Fife in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And she is taking this as a private member's bill, and it's got government support. So... We're hoping very much that this is going to get through all of its stages and become law um, mm. so that we can just that. raise awareness. Yeah, absolutely. And um, mm. people who've got it in the workplace, carers leave, um, they, tend to, they tend to have slightly lower levels of um, in ill health as well. So we can see the real, a really clear link between an understanding employer and an unpaid carer who's trying to look after family and trying to stay and work at the same time. Yeah, because it can only benefit the employer to have a healthy uh, employee who is also, you know, has the other cap of being an unpaid carer. Because, you know, if that unpaid carer stroke employee uh, is suffering physically or mentally, then ultimately, you know, it's, it's not, you know, uh, rocket science, but they could be taking days off work. All right, that was um, the last show that we, or you know, the clip that we wanted to uh, make you, uh, you know, show, sh- not show you, but uh, play here on the last draft time show of the year 2022. Emily Holtzhausen, OBE, thank you very much for your time. And that brings us, unfortunately, to the end of today's show. We all need to recognize what caring costs. 
Um, we want everyone to come together to spread the word about what life is like for unpaid carers, promote where they can go for help and support and make them aware of their rights and how to access them. Um, and that was just every, one of the clips and, uh, you know, short uh, clip, actually, to be honest. Um, and it was a whole show that we uh, did on, on that topic. So at the end, uh, there's a few more things that uh, I want to give you on the way before we head into the new year. First of all, I think um, we cannot finish uh, the Draft Time show of uh, 2022 uh, before thanking some of the key players that make this show so smooth and make it running and uh, make sure that <laughs> when we get here to the studio as presenters that we have everything ready for us. Uh, all the guests that have been lined up throughout the year. First of all, I want to thank all of them. Um, Jazakallah, may God bless you for all of your time. And uh, throughout the year, it's been amazing to talk to the number of guests from different backgrounds the charities the NGOs the different organizations that are helping to shape and form the society to make sure that people who are you know as we spoke about um, uh, the cost of living crisis we spoke about the energy crisis that people who are affected by that refugees um, you name it modern day slavery people who are affected by these issues that they are being helped so um, a big shout out to everyone who came on to the Draft Time Show throughout the year. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for sharing your stories, your expertise, and answering our questions on these issues. Uh, every guest that made time for us here on the Draft Time Show, from the bottom of our hearts, we would like to say thank you very much. I would like to say thank you, a big huge thank you actually, to all of our research and production team who work tirelessly behind the scenes and uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure you you know this, but uh, let me say this again: all of these um, teams behind um, this, this the, the mic, they're all volunteers. So thank you very much to all of you out there for researching, for producing. I would like to say thank you very much to the tech team as well, who has been on our side from day one, who make sure that we don't really mess up. But of course, as it is with live shows, sometimes it does happen. So we do apologize if um, if, if, if there have been any hiccups in the past. I would like to say thank you also to the social media team. So all of the tweets, all of the Instagram posts, the polls that we conduct and whatnot, all of this is done by a huge team who are working around the clock from around the world to be honest so we have different teams in different time zones in different countries uh, you name it from east to west from north, north to south so jazakallah to all of them as well and last but not least we would like to say thank you a huge thank you to all of you out there listening to the Draft Time Show listening to Voice of Islam throughout the year if you have any comments if you have any feedback by all means do let us know you can send us a tweet you can you know send us a comment on Instagram you can email us so do make sure that you do reach out to us in the next year as well from all of us here at the Draft Time Show tomorrow morning SML is going to be with you and Weekend World on Sunday morning. Jazakallah, thank you very much for joining us and have a blessed and new 2023.